Tuesday, May 11th, from The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, News Items. Today, we have an interview with Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. Before retiring in 2018, his last assignment was Commanding General of U.S. Army Europe. The main threat in that theater was, and still is, Russia. And that is the focus of our discussion. Tomorrow, my co-host Rebecca Darst and I will discuss important and interesting items from the newsletter. But without further ado, here's our interview with Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. We're very fortunate today to have as our guest Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. We came across General Hodges in an interview that he gave to Espresso TV in which he described uh, the situation in Ukraine in a way that we had not heard it described before. So we thought we would take this opportunity to have him come on the show and give us his views and thoughts on what's happening in Ukraine and why we should be at least alert to the possibilities. General Hodges, thank you very much for joining us. John, thanks for the privilege. I wanted to start with our listeners. I suspect that a good number of them have a general idea of what's happening in Ukraine. I wondered if you could give them a more specific idea of what's happening and why what's happening there is important. So thank you. Three things. First of all, this is a continuation of what the Russian Federation started in 2008 when they invaded Georgia. And they saw that the West really did not react or do anything. And then they saw that we didn't do anything after the Assad regime violated President Obama's red lines back in 2013. And then uh, they saw that the West, again, really didn't do anything after their invasion of Ukraine in 2014, other than finally some sanctions by the European Union. And then NATO itself began to take steps to improve its own posture. So in other words, what's happening now in Ukraine is a continuation of what started years ago. And so this pause is only that. It's a pause. Number two, I thought it was great that Secretary Blinken recently visited Ukraine and his first visit there, first visit by a senior Biden administration official. And it signaled American support, as stated by the president, for Ukrainian sovereignty. Now, there is no strategy to underpin it yet, but that's an important policy declaration. And then the third point is that this is about great power competition, and we have to compete in all the domains to make sure that our allies are safe and also that we can help develop the economic potential of the Black Sea region. How do you think President Putin views the situation? Well, I think President Putin sees two or three things. First, he's demonstrating that he can mass uh, capability, that he can threaten, that he kind of sets the tone in the region whenever he wants to based on, so far, the lack of a sustained, substantial, meaningful reaction by the West, not just the United States, but by the rest of Europe. He's also made it clear that he is going to do everything he can to prevent further Western integration by Ukraine. Uh, I'm not talking about not even NATO, just the European Union, further Western integration by Ukraine, which is also, of course, what he's doing in Georgia and in Transnistria, which is a part of Moldova and Belarus. So that's what this is about, is his frontier. And is the goal to sort of create chaos or just to kind of parry and thrust and see what the reactions are and make people dance to his tune? So part of this is to make sure Ukraine remains to a degree unstable 
And he's achieving that with what he's doing, supporting the so-called separatists in the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine, but also his occupation of Crimea starting back in 2014 and continued strengthening there. All of this is intended to make sure that Germany and France, for example, have no appetite for welcoming Ukraine into NATO and also destabilizing the administration of President Zelensky, looking for ways to enable the two oblasts, if you will, in Donbass, Luhansk and Donetsk, to have some sort of veto over Ukraine's foreign policy. That's kind of his diplomatic objective. And then there's a practical commercial objective. You've got a lot of untapped energy resources at the bottom of the Black Sea. And also most of Russia's grain export goes out through the Black Sea, through the Turkish Straits, and out to the rest of the world. They have no interest in anybody else being able to use the Black Sea. I wanted to ask you the recent buildup of Soviet forces on the eastern Ukraine was then followed by a U.S. naval ship entering the Black Sea and then returning, so to speak, not exiting the Black Sea, which then was followed by a reduction in force, if you will, on the uh, Ukraine border, for lack of a better phrase. What was that about? The U.S. sent a ship there and then they turned it around. Russians were building up and then they said they were standing down. What was all that about? Well, of course, I don't have access to the specific conversation that would, that would have taken place between the White House and the Kremlin or perhaps Secretary Blinken and his Russian counterparts. But it's important to keep in mind that Russia has not sent anybody home. There is no de-escalation. This was a complete fairy tale, typical of the Kremlin, when the defense minister Shoigu says, okay, the exercise is over. Good job, guys. Everybody go back to the barracks. There may have been a handful of soldiers returned, but all of their equipment has stayed in place. And more importantly, the land forces is what the Russian Navy has done in the Black Sea region, where they have shut down almost a quarter of the Black Sea for so-called exercises out through October, and they've completely blocked traffic through the Kerch Straits, which is what connects the Black Sea to the Sea of Azov. This is a continued blockade, if you will, of Ukraine in a long-term attempt to choke out Ukraine's seaports at Mariupol and Verdansk. So the United States had intended to send two frigates that were going to go up into the Black Sea. This was announced by Turkey. Of course, that's normal because Turkey has sovereignty over the so-called Turkish Straits. And in accordance with the Montreux Convention, non-Black Sea nations such as the United States or the UK or Italy, for example, have to get permission from Turkey to go into the Black Sea, and they can only stay for 21 days. So Turkey announced that the U.S. had planned to do this. For some reason, the United States decided not to send those ships into the Black Sea. And in fact, they stopped at our base in Crete in the eastern Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. At some point, the Kremlin announces, okay, the exercise is over. And you could almost feel the sigh of relief everywhere. The problem is, th this is just a pause. This is not a de-escalation. So that's the problem when you're dealing with the Kremlin. We assume that they think like we do. And so many people have a hard time acknowledging that these guys respect only force, and they completely disregard international law, except when it suits them. And that's where we are now. And I think, actually, it's going to get worse over the next three months. Really? What makes you think that? Well, first of all, again, they've seen that we haven't done anything yet. I mean, even with sanctions, it has not changed their behavior. They saw how quickly European countries were to embrace, oh, thank God, it's de-escalated. They've sent the troops home when, in fact, they haven't. 
they're going to continue to probe and test and see how much resolve there is by the United States and others to stand by Ukraine. When the president says Ukrainian sovereignty is a priority for the United States, I think President Putin intends to see, okay, well, how much of a priority is it really? And I think they also are looking to bait President Zelensky and the Ukrainians to go after some Russian force somewhere that would then be a pretext for them to do more. And then finally, the so-called water crisis that the Russians have talked about in Crimea. Of course, this is a crisis entirely of their own making, but they are using this as a pretext where they would have to go in for a humanitarian crisis, and it's only going to get worse as the summer wears on. You uh, said in that interview with Espresso that the military buildup was really a diversionary tactic and that the real game was to get complete control of the Black Sea. I think our listeners would be interested to know what you meant by that and what complete control of the Black Sea would look like. So from the Crimean Peninsula, they can already strike almost any vessel, do anything out in the Black Sea with the capabilities that they have on Crimea and with the size and capabilities of the Black Sea fleet. I mean, they've got six or seven submarines, for example. That's a significant amount of maritime capability for a body of water that is one third the size of the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, this is what we're talking about. Hmm. But what they want is to isolate Ukraine from the Black Sea. So that's why I think eventually Odessa uh, is on the menu. Odessa is the largest port and the third largest city uh, in Ukraine. But initially, it's the Sea of Azov, which is a, by agreement, is not international water, but is a water controlled by Ukraine and Russia. So a part of the western shoreline of the Sea of Azov is still Ukrainian controlled. I believe that the Kremlin intends to take control of the rest of that shoreline, which would then give them a land bridge to the Crimean Peninsula, which for a variety of reasons, both reinforcement, water, sustainment, all of these things. Crimea is the key. It's been under Russian control since 1783, and then it was under Soviet control. And only for a brief period of time, did the Soviets handed over to Ukraine when Ukraine was still a Soviet republic. And so at the end of the Soviet Union, Crimea was Ukrainian. Uh, and by agreement, the Russian Navy was allowed to keep their Black Sea fleet there in their port at Sevastopol. Of course, that all changed in 2014 when Russia illegally annexed the entire Crimean Peninsula. So that peninsula is what enables them to not only dominate the Black Sea, but also for all of their malign activity into Syria and the Eastern Mediterranean and into North Africa. When Secretary Blinken went to Ukraine and pledged you know, U.S. support, does that have a real impact? Is that something that causes, say, Putin to think twice, causes Erdogan to take notice? Tell us about what it means when a Secretary of State does something like that. This was a very important visit, and the statements from Secretary Blinken, I thought, were very clear, and it did send a signal, first to the Ukrainians, that the United States cares. I mean, after the last several years, both the Obama administration and then, of course, the last four years during the Trump administration, where if you heard Ukraine, you only thought about impeachment or Giuliani or Biden or you know stuff like that. Now, this puts it back into a professional bilateral relationship that I think is important 
for the Ukrainians and the Zelensky administration to be confident that the United States, no kidding, is going to be there. Now, they'll, they'll be anxious to see what does that support look like, what tangible support there is. But it's an important step that I think will also lead to establishing the necessary bilateral mechanisms to make progress in security, but also cleaning up corruption. Uh, the second important audience, obviously, is the Kremlin, exactly as you say, that President Putin says, when, when President Biden said Ukrainian sovereignty is a priority for the United States, of course, he doesn't know exactly what that means yet, but that's important. Without the United States saying that it's a priority, then for sure we're not going to get meaningful help from Germany or France or even the UK when it comes to supporting Ukraine. So this this is where American leadership is really important. What would other specific steps look like, given I think Biden and Putin are scheduled to meet in the next two or three months, right? Two or three things that I believe that the administration is looking to do are in terms of tangible support, of course. Uh, continue the aid that's come from the United States now starting back in the beginning during the Obama administration in which the Congress has supported clearly in a a bipartisan way, uh, military aid, training, that sort of thing. Not huge amounts, but significant and high quality. I think that will continue. The second thing will be establishing a mechanism to help figure out how does the path for Ukraine towards further Western integration, and I'm talking here about NATO, what are the things that can be done? At this point, there's no reason to waste a lot of energy arguing for NATO membership when we haven't got Berlin and Paris and London signed up for it yet. So the United States has got to do some work there. But in the interim, we can do things to help Ukraine continue to improve its own ability to defend itself. And then, of course, we've got to be specific and what we ask the Ukrainians to do. I mean, people love Ukraine, but there's a little frustration that you still have a lot of oligarchs running things, a perception throughout much of Europe that Ukraine is corrupt, unfairly so, but nonetheless, that perception is there and with some reason. And so I think, for example, getting Ukraine, the government to allow the Rada, which is the parliament, to have oversight of the military the way that the U.S. Congress has oversight of our military. That would do a lot to improve transparency, improve efficiency, and uh, reduce the chances for corruption. These are the kind of things I think that the government, the U.S. government, is going to be doing. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. If the Russians were to make a move to begin to take control of the Black Sea, essentially, what would that look like? How do you think that would play out? First of all, part of it's already in place. Right. As I mentioned earlier, they have shut down the Kerch Strait and they have declared about one quarter of the Black Sea as uh, live fire training areas for now until October. So basically the next five or six months, you can't go in those certain areas. So that stuff is in place and they've brought in a lot of extra maritime capability, moved vessels from the Caspian Sea via canals and rivers down into the Sea of Azov and Black Sea. That's in place. You asked me earlier, and I didn't answer it very well, diversion, all these forces that were in and around the Donbass, mm-hmm. they have no need to go into Donbass. That's, they're already achieving what they want. What I do believe that they'll do is a combination of amphibious operations, special operations, 
and not necessarily obvious military, but things that make it difficult to figure out what's going on until it's too late, uh, using this pretext of a water crisis, for example, to seize this canal, a long canal that connects the Dnipro River to the Crimean Peninsula, which was built many years ago for the very reason of bringing water down there. Ukraine closed off this canal in 2014, and that's what the Russians are complaining about now. So I think part of this would be to seize control of that canal. About 40% of the population in that region is pro-Russian. And so there's an information operation underway now telling people how horrible the Ukrainian government is, that they're making the poor people in Crimea suffer. This is part of the process. And then finally, uh, for sure, Russian Navy and special operators would completely shut down whatever Ukrainian Navy infrastructure and capabilities were there along the uh, Black Sea coast between Crimea and Odessa, and uh, also along the Sea of Azov, western coast, as I mentioned earlier. Is this something you think is going to happen in the next three to six months? I'm reluctant to say something is inevitable because obviously I don't control all the the variables. But I think it is very possible, very likely, because, again, the West has not demonstrated the ability to inflict punishment on the Kremlin to change their behavior. And President Putin obviously is not interested in winning the Nobel Peace Prize. (laughs) He's interested in making sure that Ukraine could never integrate to the West. And as well as he's got a serious domestic issue with elections coming up in September. He knows that Germany is completely focused inward with its uh, parliamentary elections coming up in September as well, which will then lead to a new German government. So it's, it's the end of the era of Chancellor Merkel. The French, President Macron, has his own elections coming up the following year. The UK is not interested in the Black Sea region. And they know that the United States is dealing with this, but we've got three or four other massive issues going on with COVID, getting the economy going, and China. From a practical standpoint, the Russians left everything in place that they deployed there in the last few weeks. All the the stuff that's hard to move, that's there. And they've got their major exercise of the year, Zapad, still to come. And Europe goes on holiday in August. So I think August and September is going to be very important to watch. I wanted to ask you a little further afield. The Russians are making, I guess you would call them, major moves in the Arctic. And I read about this, I think, a week ago, and I was surprised I hadn't read it before. But have you been following that at all? Yeah, the Arctic is the next sort of uh, area where you're going to see increased competition. Clearly, the uh, melting polar ice cap is opening up transit routes uh, the month of February. This past February was the first time that we had a ship sail from the Pacific to the North Atlantic over the North Pole in the month of February, and it's only going to get better. Now, that vessel had to follow a Russian icebreaker along the so-called Northern Transit Route, which runs along the northern coastline of Russia, but that's significant. And so as as climate continues to change, uh, it's going to become more and more navigable throughout the year which, of course, is what the Chinese spotted uh, a long time ago. We, everybody's seeing it. Russians realize that this not only gives them uh, an important route that will pass along their coastline, but it also opens up exploration opportunities for uh, mineral resources. They think there are vast amounts of uh, important resources down on the Arctic floor. So because of that, they have begun to establish or reestablish 
the capability to interdict traffic, air and missile defense, uh, significant investments and capabilities up there. Now, Norway, of course, uh, a NATO ally, a charter member of NATO, shares a border of about 400 kilometers with Russia at the very uh, top of Europe. There's also a set of islands called Svalbard, which is halfway between continental Norway and the North Pole. So the Russians are already complaining about access to Svalbard. The Norwegians are concerned about the very top 10% of Norway, if you will, if you look at the map. That's the part that if Russia were to seize that, it would enable them to control access through what the Navy calls the GI-UK gap, Greenland, Iceland, UK gap. So Denmark has put long-range drones back on the Greenland, which you know was a territory of the Kingdom of Denmark. Right. They've reactivated uh, Cold War radar on the Faroe Islands, and all of us are starting to pay much more attention to what the Russians are doing on there. This also brings the Chinese into play too, right? For sure. The, the largest embassy in Iceland is the Chinese embassy, uh, and they have multiple scientific experiments going on in the area because they clearly see the potential, the economic potential of being able to move ships loaded with containers over the top of the globe, which will be quicker and cheaper than moving them by rail through Eurasia and Europe. Does the U.S. or NATO or both have a strategy to deal with, you know, the sort of Russian advance, if you will, on the Arctic? I have seen in the last year a significant increase in the amount of attention, exercises, uh, capability development, and just flat out language about the Arctic region, both in Brussels from NATO and from the United States Department of Defense. So people are alive to it, but you've got multiple places of challenges and competition, and so you try to muster the resources. What are the resources that you need there? Is it maritime? Is it land-based? Is it more air? Is it intelligence? These are all capabilities that the Alliance and the United States are trying to make sure they have the right things there. But I can't tell yet, are we way behind or are we still ahead or, or where is it? It's sort of frightening to think that the Russians would invade the top of Norway and take control of it. You're right. I would not have thought of that myself, but I asked a very senior Norwegian officer recently. I said, so what's your concern? What's the big threat? And he had taken me on a tour of this 400 meter kilometers of boundary between Norway and, and they have guard posts along there and with young women and men from the Norwegian Armed Forces out there. And I said, what's the threat? What are you worried about? And he said, that top 10%. And I was really taken aback by how matter of fact he was about that. They know that if Russia were willing to do something, if Russia thought that the rest of the world would not really react, then he thought that was a very real possibility. And this was not a you know, a guy hanging out in his mom's basement. I mean, this was a senior uh, Norwegian officer. Wow. That, that's stunning. Well, you know, you think about Sweden. Sweden made the decision to put troops back on Gotland Island. Gotland Island is a large island in the Baltic Sea, not quite in the middle. And they had demilitarized it about 14 years ago. But now when they look at what Russia is doing, Sweden decided that it was not beyond the realm of the possible that Russia might try to seize Gotland Island, which would then significantly change the calculus, uh, or maybe I should say the geometry 
in the Baltic Sea. If they were able to seize Golan Island and put anti-ship missiles in there and those kind of capabilities, it would change things. And I guess that really, John, is, is the point, is that we can't assume that the Kremlin thinks like we do. Right. That they respect only strength. And the best way to make sure we don't get into a conflict is by demonstrating that we have the strength necessary to deter them. You know, I think we've run out of time here, but I would love to have you back. And the next time we're going to have to do a video screen so you can show people on the map what you're talking about. I think a lot of our listeners probably will need a map when they listen to it. We'll put it on the newsletter to make sure they have a map when they listen to what you're talking about. Oh, thank you. I'd love to. This has been great. The Norway thing is just fascinating. So I hope that you can come back on and we'll talk more about that and the Arctic and obviously update on Ukraine and the Black Sea. But thank you very, very much for joining us today. Uh, John, thank you for the privilege. And, and you can grade my paper and we can see how wrong I was, you know, three months from now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the News Items Podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian castro Rosell, Pierre Bianame, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. See you tomorrow.